brand new sound for your Sunday morning. The only one who could ever teach me. Introducing the Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was the son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Fantasnik of Religion on the Line. The only one who could ever teach me. Now on 77 WABC, The Rev and the Rabbi, where faith matters. Good morning, I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard, and you're listening to The Rev and the Rabbi on 77 WABC. So, Rabbi. Very special show today with very special guests. Rev, there are people we call friends, and there are people we call friends who are like family. And our guest today is Eminence, Timothy Cardinal Dolan, has become family for us. Or as we say in Hebrew, mishpacha. Uh, and we feel that close to him. We're honored. Your Eminence, to have you with us uh, at this very, very difficult time in the history of our nation to discuss issues that impact all of us. So thank you so much. I'm the one who's grateful, uh, Rabbi Potasnik and Reverend Bernard. I always enjoy being with you, and I feel I have such confidence and trust. Uh, thanks for including me. So Martin Luther King said years ago that our lives begin to end the day that we become silent about things that matter. And I think people look to faith leaders to help prioritize their lives, to talk about things that matter. And what matters so much is how do we keep a nation together that seems to be unraveling? And I think they want answers from us, Your Eminence. Well, I hope we can get, give some. I think uh, you, uh, Rabbi Potasnik and, and Reverend A.R. Bernard would agree with me that uh, sometimes we have as many questions as they do. It's not like we're the... Uh, it's not like we're the gurus on a hill. We struggle with these matters as well. But you're right. They look for some focus. They look for some direction. God has given that to us in the Bible that uh, all three of us cherish. And I risk maybe being a tad naive. I thought President-elect Biden, when he spoke on that disastrous uh, Wednesday a week and a half ago, he, he said something that I found so simple that it was downright profound. When he described the violence, the division, the hate that was going on, and he simply said, remember, this is not America. Now, again, I hope I'm not being uh, rose-colored glass, uh, glasses here, but I'm sensing that, that more and more people are rising up and saying, we're better than this. This is a, this is a, a minority of people that bothers us, but yet this is not America. And this is the time to uh, kind of re-cling to the higher ground. I, the inauguration of a, of a new president always gives us that chance for renewal and revival, no matter what political party we're on. We pray for them. We wish them well. We just want them to do the best. I think that's kind of clicking in. I sometimes think our people who are looking for answers and focus and revival, you know, these people don't all speak for us and we haven't lost hope. And we know what America is about. We've gotten through this before and we're going to come, we're going to turn out more durable than ever. I don't know. A.R., do you think I'm, I'm too Pollyannish here? Or, or uh, not at all. I, I love what you just said. That transition of power creates an opportunity for renewal and revival. And I think that is the way to look at this. It creates the opportunity for change, for creativity and innovation to move things forward. It forces us to look back at what has happened, what has brought us to the place we are, and what can we do to make things better. Yeah, we are better than what we saw with the storming of the Capitol. And I, I would say this uh, to both of you gentlemen. Um, there were several pictures, but one photo captured people scaling the walls, climbing over, breaking glass. And I looked out at the photo, and New York Times did an article on this as well, 
and interspersed were allusions to QAnon in symbolic form, allusions to QAnon conspiracies. There was Confederate flags there. There were anti-Semitic T-shirts. There were Jesus 2020. There was Trump 2021. And what that says to me, all these different symbols, is that this crowd was not monolithic. Everyone was not there with the same agenda. And too often, we, and we did it with the Black Lives Matters protests in, in, in summer of last year. We paint them all with a broad stroke brush. There were testimonies of people who felt that God told them to be there. And they drove all the way from Pennsylvania, from Cincinnati, Ohio, just to be there. So I think that we need to put in perspective mm. the ugly visions that we saw as a whole and know that that was not a monolithic group there. Can, can I'm I not defending add, them. Yeah. If I could add one point, to me, the most touching moment of all was the fact that our congressional leaders reconvened, that they, they weren't going to stop democracy in the face of this attack. We are going to start again. You are not going to define who we are. And I think that's the, that's the challenge here. The decent outweigh the indecent. We have to consistently, not we have to search for consensus, we have to create consensus and demanding to do that which is right. Even if it may be unpopular to some, we don't preach based on, you know, whether some people will like it. We, we are very much connected to our faith traditions and uh, we believe in telling it as we should, as what people need to hear, not necessarily want to hear. And I thought that moment of coming together, that defined America. It did. You're on to something, Rabbi Potasnik, the fact that they they reconvened. It reminds me of what you all told me when I got here 12 years ago when we were talking about September 11th. And you, you both said the important day for us was September 12th. We got back at it. We went to work. Uh, we began to rebuild. We began to renew. And that's what they did. I, I also thought the, cr the almost the universal cringing throughout our beloved country, that this took place at the Capitol. It sort of was people have an innate sense that there's something unique and sacred about these. They're, they're almost temples and shrines for us. And the Capitol represents a vigorous democracy where the, where the ideals of freedom, justice, uh, liberty, those are hammered out there. And that's a sacred space that should be free, not, not free from, uh, from uh, tense discussions and all, but free from any type of invasion, hatred, or violence. I'm almost wondering, you, we all, all three of us know that in recent years, the agencies of government have been tarnished as corrupt, as narrow, as inefficient. And I'm thinking, wow, that this nation stood up and said, this is bad wherever it would happen, but that it would happen at our nation's capital. Boy, oh boy, that, that is really a wake-up call for us to, oh, what should I say, reclaim the sacredness of what we got as Americans that are symbolized by, yes, the White House, yes, the Supreme Court, yes, the Capitol. And maybe that's going to be a restoration of decency. I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard, and you're listening to the Reverend the Rabbi on 77 WABC. And of course, our, our guest is, we have with us is Cardinal Timothy Dolan. I want to, before we go a step further, focus on the symbolism that you expressed in the Capitol, what it represents, almost a sacred political shrine to American society. And those things are very powerful, and often people don't realize. Rabbi, 
Speak to the symbol of the temple in Jerusalem in old Judaism, because it was not just religious. It was a center for for Jewish life, politically, socially, Jewish identity. All of that was built into the temple before it was destroyed, correct? After it was destroyed, look at the importance of the sacredness of the wall. You go to the, the Western Wall, and you stand there, and this is a remnant of what stood years ago, and you say, this is holy for me, and people put their petitions, their prayers into the wall. And years ago, people traveled when the temple stood. It was the focal point of Jewish life. So when you use the word sacred, and it means something for all of us, it's something that you revere, you respect, and we have to restore the sacredness of the individual, the sacredness of a place, the sacredness of a person has to be restored. I had a professor at college who said to me, remember the most important words in the Bible, in my view, and it came to pass. What do you do the day after? All of us have heard people make all kinds of proclamations on the day. Tell me what happens the day after the proclamation. And I think what we will see, and hopefully what we are seeing, is the day after that desecration, people are saying, we want to begin again. The people who are decent, the people who care, not the people who want to rip us apart. And that's the majority of Americans that I'd like to focus on. Rabbi and Reverend Bernard, you, you all have been, I spent nine happy years in D.C., and I was always with people. We go to the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the Vietnam Memorial, the White House, the Capitol, the Supreme Court. We'd, see, we'd go to the archives. You might have the rowdiest group of teenagers. And when you stand in front of the Declaration of Independence, there's an awe and a reverence. Mm -hmm. When you walk into the uh, Jefferson Memorial, you see the people raise their heads to the uh, image of Thomas Jefferson. They keep their heads up to read the inscriptions, the quotes from Jefferson, and then they usually bow their heads with a sense of reverence. That's the way we should feel uh, about the Capitol. That's the way we should feel about our institutions in Washington. That doesn't mean they're bold. That doesn't mean that they, are, uh, that they don't deserve criticism and call the task. You bet it does. But as long as that's done in a reverent way, and I'm just hoping that's going to be rediscovered. I think we have to take the scars of life and try to transform them into scratches, into design, rather. Uh, we've all been scarred. We've all been scratched. How do we now have a design for living going forward? That's what community does. We come together in the midst of crisis. We've done it before. We'll do it now because we are prisoners of hope. Our faith commands us to hope. It's in the Psalms. It's in every, every liturgy has a message of hope. You know, Rabbi and uh, Reverend, I'm reading Chernow's excellent biography of George Washington. Mm -hmm. And he, he's got a great uh, couple paragraphs there about Washington's second inaugural. And somebody asked him, uh, well, this, this is uh, your first inaugural towered above this. This is sort of anticlimactic. He said, no, this is more important. The transition of power works. The Constitution works. The noble ideals of America are now real. And I thought, wow, there you go again. The, this stuff works and it cannot be destroyed and we can't let it be destroyed. And that's, that's a sentiment I, I detect being revived uh, throughout, throughout American life. I'd like you to speak to from, you know, the context of the Christian faith, especially Catholicism, the spirit of lawlessness we have seen so much of, you know, over the past year and hopefully culminating you know, with the storming of the Capitol, and hopefully this will kind of, you know, 
begin to go into remission. But that spirit of lawlessness, how do we understand that from a moral and spiritual perspective? Don't we understand it as a rejection, I think, a rejection of the divine and the trans- transcendent and God's will? We have a God who loved us so much that he gave us laws. We have a God who loved us so much that he instilled within us kind of an innate natural sense of right and wrong. We have a God who really has told us that freedom means not the ability to do whatever we want, but the desire to do what we ought. And that, of course, is ensured by law. Now, that doesn't mean we're we're constantly kind of revisiting laws and, and tempering them or adding to them, enhancing them, because our laws, of course, are human expression, which are never going to be as, as free from imperfection as divine expression. So that doesn't mean that we just sit back and say, well, the law is the law. Uh, there's nothing we can do about it. No, we can work to change the law. But we use that phrase that has now become a bromide of law and order. Those are virtues. Those are good. Those ensure the common good. In the Jewish and Christian tradition, the common good is a high, high, not only an ideal, but a moral imperative. And law and order assures that. And that's why we bristle when we see it thrown aside. What does it say about human nature? Because, Rabbi, I'd like you in, Ju- in the context of yeah. Judaism to respond to that. So, but what does it say about human nature? But let me, let me say this, that we are a people, if you look at Jewish tradition, the Torah is replete with laws. We have 613 commandments, not just the 10 you saw in the movie. There are 613 of them to be kept. And when this world was created, didn't God begin by saying to Adam and Eve, there are rules here, don't do this. And of course, they violated the law. There was consequences. So we have great respect for the law. We expect people to maintain a certain legal moral standard. When we speak, we're supposed to echo the the sentiments, the statements of the prophets who really were bound by, you know, moral law. So we have a saying in Jewish tradition, the law of the land is the law which you have to observe. You live, the law applies to you. And the word for state in Hebrew, Medina, its root is din, which is law. So we are very, very committed to the preservation of law. And those, uh, as the Cardinal said so rightly, those who violate laws are really diminishing the image of God. Reverend Bernard, aren't you glad we don't have all those laws to obey? I'm still, I'm still trying. Six hundred and thirteen. I just took, still, I, I, I took note. <laughs> well, you, tried, to you guys took the shortcut. We, you know, the, we ten, the ten was a lot easier to deal with than six hundred and thirteen. <laughs> no, you know, I'm still, I'm still having a challenge with the ten. I'm, I don't know what I'll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but again, going back to my question, because I, why do we need? Oh, well, you know, this is stating the obvious, but is there a spiritual response to it. We need laws. We need boundaries. We talk about trespass in the prayer of our Lord Jesus. Cardinal, you're familiar with that. What is it about human nature? We just, you know, bad people? How does how does that work? What does it say about human nature? It's a good one, A.R. And isn't it, see, here's the other thing. Not only did God give us laws, he gave us something called free will. And that's one of the greatest gifts that we have. He, he trusts us. He gave us free will because he wants our love, and love cannot be coerced. We have to mm-hmm. freely give it back. But um, that free will is a dangerous gift, isn't it? It's like wow, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm sorry, Cardinal. You got to back up. I mean, you just said that he gave us free will so we can love. So w- without free will, love is not legitimate. 
Well, yeah, because love can't be coerced, right? I mean, we don't like shotgun weddings. Love has got to be freely given. He gave Adam and Eve free will. He said, here it is, you two, I love you. I want to love you personally, passionately, no. uh, eternally, but uh, I'm not forcing it. You're free to reject it, and many people do. And that's why there's a, there's a restraining force to law to make sure that people who misuse their free will are said, no, that's not acceptable in a republic, in a democracy. That is contrary to the common good. Now, to work that out, boy, that demands a lot of reflection, discernment, and historical wisdom. And we're getting there as Americans. And I just think what, what we saw, I think that's going to hone our appreciation for law, for order, for our sacred institutions, for the magnificent experiment in democracy and ordered living that we have in America. And it's going to say freedom is not absolute, is it? Freedom, well, like anything else, is always tempered by responsibility. Right. And Your eminence, AR. I always leave more refreshed than when I arrive. Thank you. All right. God bless. And we'll Thanks. be back with more of The Rev and, and the, the Rabbi. Rabbi. Where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi. 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Tashnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. And you're listening to The Rev and the Rabbi right here on 77 WABC. And Rabbi, we've got a guest that you're going to introduce. We have a special guest, a good friend, Jack Lieger, who is the president and CEO of the Museum of Jewish Heritage in Battery Park, a treasure. It has a distinguished history, and it's a living museum. People sometimes think that museums only talk about the past, but this museum teaches you about the past, but also has a message for the present and the future. So, Jack Klieger, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Rabbi, and thank you, Reverend. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you. So, Jack, there was a very, very ugly incident that took place at the museum recently. Talk about that, but as I learned from you, that incident was not the end of the story. No, it was not. Unfortunately, on um, Thursday morning, January 8th, about 2 a.m., the day after uh, the events that had taken place in Washington, a group of three men drove up in front of the museum, which is located down in Battery Park City, and um, did two things. They got out of their truck and went over and took a Confederate flag and tied it in a knot around our front entrance. And then uh, the three of them, uh, in addition, uh, brought took out a neo-fascist flag unfurled it, stood in front of the railroad car that stands in front of the museum, one of the cars that we used to transport Jews to the death camps, and they uh, unfurled the flag and did a Nazi salute, took a photo of themselves and published it on the, uh, on the internet. They then quickly uh, departed and did a similar thing at the front of the Federal Reserve Bank and in front of a uh, the bull in front of Merrill Lynch. We were the primary target, but they hit symbols of the federal government and the financial community. That was the gist of the incident, obviously very uh, setting and very disturbing. You know, the brazenness of people, not only to, to place the flag, but to publicly post a picture of themselves so proud of this dastardly act. What does that say about, you know, the depravity of some people who are willing to go 
people used to hide their appearances. Now they right. openly uh, publicize. What does that say? What it says in some ways, I think, one of our board of trustees, uh, Abe Foxman, who I'm sure you know, says mm-hmm. is that what's happened is the Band-Aid's been ripped off, that people aren't embarrassed about their theories, proclivities, and hatreds, that they feel emboldened to be upfront about it, which is a very upsetting statement. But as upsetting as that was, and heartening has been the outreach from so many communities of fellow institutions, leaders of all faiths, government, and the police have been very uh, supportive and cooperative. And even the, the public school across the street from the museum asked if they could come show their support. So as much as uh, there's that sense of darkness in terms of what can be done by people, it was very heartening to see how much support we got by people who were upset, outraged, and wanted to show solidarity. And and these were people uh, who were not necessarily part of the Jewish community or, or, oh. or the museum. These were other people, right? Absolutely. Uh, these were interfaith. We got something from uh, Muslim leaders and Christian leaders as well as lay leaders. And most of the students at the PS276 across the street are, are not Jewish. This was offensive to anybody. You didn't have to be Jewish to be offended and to be upset about the implication. I mean, they, they chose not to put a Nazi flag in the doorway. They chose to put a Confederate flag. Hmm. And so hmm. the message that that sent was doubly chilling. Rabbi, speak to that, because why is it even more chilling than the the Nazi flag? And, and you know, this may be, you know, stating the obvious, but I think sometimes we need to state that. Why is it more chilling to have that Confederate flag? To me, it's more chilling because it underscores that we are not only united in terms of our common values, but that we oftentimes have common enemies common hatreds. And this person chose to put a Confederate flag there, a symbol of white supremacy, but a particularly Mm -hmm. chilling symbol for for people of color. And he stuck it in a Jewish museum right in the site of a a railroad car like that. To me, it's the hatred of the other, whether it's people of color, Jewish people, Muslim people. It was a more universal symbol of hatred to me. Just say this, that, that we have seen in history that what starts with Jews doesn't stop with Jews. And those who hate me today as a Jew will hate you tomorrow uh, as a person of color, or as a person who's deemed different, who doesn't meet the criteria of the white supremacist, of the Aryan. Sometimes people think, well, that's your story. That's your tragedy. And then they see very quickly that your story becomes our story. And I think that Confederate flag emphasizes that there are people who don't want us here in America, just as they didn't want us there in Germany. And it's, it's a warning. It's a warning that we cannot close our eyes to this hatred that is out there. And I have to say, during this time of COVID, when people are spending more time at home, I think they're looking at social media more. As I was listening to a program this week, people have become radicalized. Some people never thought they would become radicalized, were radicalized by things that were being thrust at them over and over again on some of these sites. So we... uh, have to be very, very cautious and not be delusional and think we're living in this country that is open to everybody without real concerns about those who would destroy this country. For those of us, again, who are different. Yeah, I like what you said, Rabbi. It's not that it's somewhere remotely in Europe. It's here Mm -hmm. on the very shores of America, the place that we come to for the land of freedom and and opportunity. So it brings it close to home, and, and it really does 
make it chilling. And this is the power of these symbols that express a hatred that should not be present. But Mm. it also draws people together. The solidarity of the human family is very, very real. So what affects you affects me, even when I don't realize it. But when we do realize it, it forces us to come together. It really galvanizes. We're talking to Jack Lee, your president and CEO of the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Jack? Well, thank you. Yes, it does galvanize. It's been very motivating and inspiring. It's ironic that I have just received a letter and note of support from the German Consulate General, which I found really amazing. And this afternoon at 4 o'clock, the 30 students from the school across the street are going to hold a vigil in support of the museum in front of the uh, the railroad car. They're going to practice social distance by placing hula hoops down so that they each have their own space. And it's going to be really a, a very moving thing. But the principal called and said they asked that they could do that. Wow, so, wow. And, these, and this is not a yeah. Jewish school. This is not a Hebrew no, school. No, no. This PS, is a, uh, a public school, right? How old are these children? I think they're fourth and fifth graders. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and you know, one of the things, it's called the Museum of Jewish Heritage, but it is open to all, for all. And I think when you go through the museum, whether it's the Auschwitz exhibit, which is so moving and meaningful, and obviously now uh, you can do it online, Jack, if I'm right, uh, yep. parts of it, right? Yep. But it's, yes. it has a message for all people. So you learn what des- destroyed people requires a collaborative spirit of working together so we don't repeat history. We learn from history. Talk about, for a moment, how many non-Jews walk through the door? I mean, I, you don't take a poll, but if you had to ask well, about the percentage of non-Jews. Well, I can tell you that we have almost 60,000 school students in the 8th and 10th grade who come through this on a normal year when it's non-COVID, uh, who come through and get uh, taken through the exhibitions. And the majority of those students are not Jewish. Um, so I can I can I can start with with that subject. But the other thing I want to emphasize is that this museum was located here at the point of Battery Park City, downtown, specifically facing two important historical uh, institutions: the Statue of Liberty on one side and Ellis Island on the other. And this this museum's experience is in, irrevocably intertwined with with immigration. And and the fact is, New York is not only where so many families came to get to freedom, but it was not just one group. It was not just Jews. It was Italians. It was color people from Irish people from all sorts of places. Yeah. So we look well, and we, we look out at symbols that tell us that, yes, we are a museum of Jewish heritage, but we're but we are a museum that celebrates brotherhood and, and freedom for all. And if, if we are, as I say, if, if I am, if we are all not free, then I am not free. You know, Rabbi, I I have to say, yeah, before we go, I I just want to summarize with this, you know, the story of Joseph in Egypt and his family and those beautiful words, what was meant for evil, God turned around for good. So it's wonderful to see some good come out of this in terms of human relationships. So thank you so much, uh, Jack. Jack, thank you. You know, I saw that sign once at museum. There's hope for the future, quoting the prophet. There is hope for the future when decent people come together. Thank you so much. Jack Klieger. Thank you very much. Pleasure to speak to you both. We'll be back with more of the Rev and the Rabbi. 
Sinai Chapels provides compassionate care to New York's Jewish community. Conveniently located in Fresh Meadows, Queens, every funeral detail is handled by an attentive professional staff according to each family's personal and religious preferences. Sinai staff is at the chapel for you, 24 hours, 7 days a week. Sinai Chapels is committed to your health and safety and offers carefully planned and socially distanced services at their modern chapel or area cemeteries. Sinai has developed Zoom programs for live stream services, shiva, and consultation. Sinai Chapels offers pre-need plans to relieve families of making arrangements at a difficult time. Sinai's pre-need plans offer savings and are 100% government-backed. For more information, please call Sinai Chapels or visit jewishfunerals.com. That's jewishfunerals.com. Sinai Chapels in Fresh Meadows, Queens, providing compassionate care for four generations. Renee Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, The Rev and the Rabbi, where faith matters. 77 WABC and WABCRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. My colleague and friend, Reverend A.R. Bernard, was called away uh, and will not be on this interview with the esteemed Deborah Lauda, who is the executive director of the Office for the Prevention of Hate Crimes. And I've come to know and admire Deborah. Uh, during the years that uh, she's been in this position, and also for her great work uh, at ADL Anti-Defamation League. So, Deborah, welcome to the Rev and the Rabbi. Thank you so much, Rabbi. I'm delighted to be able to join you today. All right. So let's first talk about the office, what it does, why was it created. Give us a little background. Sure. So um, the Office for the Prevention of Hate Crimes was launched by Mayor de Blasio in September 2019. So we actually just turned 18 months old. Um, It was created by city council in response to the very troubling increase in anti-Semitic incidents that were happening throughout 2018 and into 2019. And the city felt that, you know, it's important to condemn the incidents, but they wanted to do something more, something that would really take a long-term look at what's going on and how to prevent hate violence. So my office is actually embedded in the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. Uh, We have a staff of seven uh, very diverse, fantastic professionals with a lot of different backgrounds. And our role is uh, to really, with intentionality, um, look at how we can prevent and respond to hate violence. So um, some of the things we've been doing over the past 18 months, we, we've identified all the different city agencies that we see as stakeholders in this work. Um, there's actually, we're now convening 18 of them. Uh, it's every agency that you would assume you know, would be at the table, such as NYPD, Department of Education, uh, Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, New York Thrive, but also others like the Taxi Commission and Parks. Um, So all of these agencies had been doing excellent work prior to um, my office being launched, but kind of in their silos. You know, we're we're able to bridge the gap. Um, I should mention the City Commission on Human Rights and the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs, too, have been key, key players with us. So... um, in addition to the agencies, we also convene with them the five uh, 
district attorney offices in New York. Um, they all have hate crime units now, right. so we're able to work real closely with them. So, Deborah, talk about the trajectory. Are we are we getting is it getting worse? Is it getting better? I mean, when you compare this year to last year, because whenever I pick up a paper, I'm always reading about you know the some perpetrator. Uh, committing an act of hatred or prejudice against someone in the city? Yeah. So it's an excellent question. We actually are about to um, uh, release our annual report for 2020, kind of showing what's been going on. You know, as I said, in the, in the year that we were created, it was because there was a huge escalation of hate crimes. Crimes generally in New York have been going down except for that one area. Um, so, you know, I can I can tell you in, in 2019, um, there had been 446 hate crime complaints reported. Um, in 2020, so comparing to the, what happened last year, we had a huge decrease, uh, decreased by 37%. So it went down to 282. Now, what's important to remember is, is a number of things. One, obviously, COVID hit, right? There, um, we, and many people were quarantining. There just weren't uh, as many, many people interacting, uh, whether it be on the streets or in subways. Um, but the other factor is when we talk about these numbers, um, they are the reported numbers, right? There, there is a huge um, number that are never reported mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. People either you know, may not have trust relationship with law enforcement. Um, they don't feel their complaint would be taken seriously. Um, some in the um, immigrant community, feel, you know, are worried they could be deported, which is absolutely not true. They're never asked about uh, immigration status. Um, some for privacy reasons, you know, in the LGBT yeah. community, great advances, um, but there are many who don't want their sexual identity or orientation or gender identity revealed even though, again, privacy is always protected. So the numbers we talk about, they're important to, to look at the stats, but we our office has to look what's behind some of those stats, too. Yeah. You know, Deborah, I had an interesting conversation this past week with Eric Gonzalez, who is the district attorney in Kings County, and has done some good work uh, in terms of he has a hate crimes task force. And I asked him about perpetrators who have been apprehended, going through a certain kind of uh, educational process. And I said, of the number of people who have gone through, how many have repeated, uh, you know, the act of hatred? He said, none. He said, we're very proud of the fact that once we put them through a rigorous program, indoctrinating them with what is right and what is wrong, which obviously they haven't learned until that point, um, it, it has an impact you know, of course, yep. you know, we do it after the fact and we have to ask ourselves, so what more can we do to be proactive than reactive? But there is something to be said about people doing this and then recognizing that I never should have done this. Uh, and I and I think that's something that gives us a little bit of uh, insight into uh, some of the remedial steps that need to be taken. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And, and the Brooklyn DA's office um, has done some uh, terrific work in this area. Um, the, the agencies that I mentioned were convening, we've actually been working in specific focus groups on different issues, um, such as education, community safety, victim support. But one of them is on restorative justice and looking at models 
that would be particularly helpful for hate crime perpetrators. And I often look to and cite the uh, the Brooklyn DA's office because you know a couple summers ago they there were some teenagers that were apprehended who were doing swastikas, um, and it created a you know obviously a lot of fear in the communities and whatnot. And what the what the DA's office did was they they brought these teens over to the uh, Jewish Heritage Museum mm-hmm. to understand what the swastika is and why it causes uh, so much fear in communities. They had no real context for it. They knew they were doing something wrong, um, but they didn't really understand the consequences of their actions. So so, those kinds of programs. um, Similarly, you know, we we worked with the um, OCA New York, um, an Asian Pacific advocate, and they worked with some uh, teenagers who had attacked an elderly Asian woman on a bus in the Bronx. And again, they involve them in a um, hate crime prevention art project that they do. And it had enormous positive impact on those teens. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm heartened that there is a real desire yeah. to look at non-carceral um, you know, responses to hate violence. So, Deborah, one of the things that troubles me in all of this is that when you have a teenager putting a swastika on a house of Jewish house of worship and saying, I didn't know that this was a hate symbol, and yet that same person somehow knows enough to put a swastika. The person is now putting a picture of a rose, you know. Uh, right. So there's, there's recognition on some level that I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing because why am I doing it with a swastika? And the other thing is when you attack someone on a bus, instinctually you should know that's wrong. You you shouldn't have to be taught that attacking someone on a bus is not where you should be going. Right. So how right. do you address so there, those, those Yeah, concerns? so I mean that's, that's one of the keys is education. No, no one's born hating, right? Hate is learned, and we believe that hate can be unlearned, um, you know, giving kids skills to stand up to hate, to respect themselves so that they also have the ability to respect others. Um, At one point, I uh, went into one of the Brooklyn high schools with the um, Department of Education chancellor and first lady um, to talk about what they were, you know, experiencing in their neighborhoods and to talk about anti-Semitism. And, you know, we went around in these little groups and I sat with four uh, for the teens, and they, you know they shared their experiences of what you know. Some of you know most of them were, um, were African American and Latinx, and they said, "Listen, you know, you guys are so good. We, you know, you're teaching us, you know, math and science and English, but we really need more help learning respect techniques." And I was like, "Oh, fabulous! She gets it, you know." And then another kid raises his hand and goes, "Yeah, you know what? That's all fine and good, but..." You don't know what what we hear when we go home. What are you doing about teaching our parents? Wow. So yeah. um, there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. But but education, we believe, is is one of the keys, you know, particularly in, in impacting and preventing hate early on. Deborah, we're going to take a break right now. I want to come back and follow up on uh, the kind of education they're going to be receiving. We're talking with Deborah Lado, who's the executive director of the Office for the Prevention of Hate Crimes. We'll be back with more of the Rev and the Rabbi. 
Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. Reverend A.R. Bernard is not with us for this interview. He was called away. He'll be returning shortly, I hope. Uh, we're talking with Deborah Lauder, Executive Director, Office for the Prevention of Hate Crimes. Deborah, education obviously is a prerequisite in developing character. But it's the kind of education that matters so greatly. You know, we've seen throughout history people who have degrees who are indecent. You know, people who went through an educational program and are monsters, are hate mongers. So can you talk about some of the particulars of the education in molding the kind of person who recognizes I shouldn't even be thinking about doing something like this? Yeah, I mean, clearly, uh, empathy skills are, are critically important. You have, you know, putting putting themselves in the shoes of others. But it's also, I think, Rabbi, just understanding other people and more talking about what the pains are and, uh, in their histories and, um, you know, having them tell their stories and share um, what they experience. Kids really want this. Um, we, we hear it repeatedly that they welcome these kinds of opportunities. I, I would tell you, too, and, and I think we've all been uh, awakened to the, um, the impact of false news. Um, kids need now, there needs to be much more emphasis on kids um, having analytic skills to figure out what's true and not true on the Internet. Um, and to be able to parse. So, I, you know, I think that's going to be one of the challenges for educators going forward as well, um, to break down um, some of the things they're hearing, whether it's stereotypes or, you know, just so so much is out there for kids to be exposed to, but they need the, the critical analytic skills along with the empathy skills. Yeah, and also you mentioned the home. What happens in the home? What happens, you know, amongst the circle of friends? What are they looking uh, at when they go on on the internet, and very often mm-hmm. you find parents are not, you know, involved in that experience, and kids are far more advanced many times uh, than parents in navigating uh, the internet. So, you know, it's like you need this kind of education for the parents as well, for families, for for everyone, because uh, right. if you just teach right. it to one, and they go home, and you know, an opposite message is conveyed, then. You know, you you're you're going uphill in a losing battle, right? Right. So we our office um, has actually been working on a hate crime curriculum that you know will have a, a number of different elements, but one of them will be an interactive exercise to get kids kids engaged with how do you have those conversations with your family? You know, instead of them going home saying, you know, you're a bigot. I learned that you're a bigot, you know, that they can actually sit and have a, a healthy conversation within their family unit about, um, you know, how to confront and, and be more respectful rather than, you know, of others. So we're, we're real excited about that. We're, we're hoping to roll it out for next the next academic year. One of the things that uh, to me is a very positive development is you and I and Cardinal Dolan and Reverend A.R. Bernard, the Commissioner of Religious Leaders, uh, are planning a program that will address the anti-Asian prejudice. And we're going to have members of, you know, the, uh, you know, the Asian Pacific community come on and talk about, you know, what they've encountered. Um, because the, the truth is so many of us live in our own, you know, separate enclaves that we don't really get to know the other. 
Uh, and I've often felt, you know, that inscription above houses of worship, love your neighbor. Well, it's hard to love your neighbor if you don't really know who your neighbor is, and not necessarily the person next door, but, you know, out there. Uh, and you got to learn about the person. you got to listen to the person. So talk about the anti-Asian, uh, you know, pre- prejudice that we've witnessed, which seems to be increasing of late. Yeah, so... Um you know, when I started at the beginning of the show talking about the uh, decrease in 2020 of uh, hate crimes that we were so gratified to see, um, it was the exception was in anti-Asian hate crime complaints. Um, just to give you a comparison, in 2019, there was only one uh, anti-Asian hate crime. In 2020, it went up to 30. And 16 of those 30 were actually violent incidents. You know, they involved assaults and whatnot. Um, now, when I'm talking about hate crimes, it's really important to understand for it to be deemed as a hate crime by NYPD and a DA's office, there has to be an underlying actual crime, such as assault. Um, what we're seeing, a huge, you know, while somebody might say, oh, 30 incidents isn't that much, but what we're seeing is a huge increase in reports of um, discriminatory harassment, um, sort of the, the things like name-calling, somebody yelling at an Asian person, a racial epithet, or something offensive about COVID-19, you, you know, you, you came to this country and you're spreading it, you know, just really horrible, unfounded um, uh, things being done. So those, those numbers also dramatically increased um, last year. And you know, I will tell you, I've been I've been spending a lot of time with leaders in the um, Asian Pacific, Asian American Pacific Islander community, um, and there is just a lot of fear. Um, and you you know, you mentioned seeing things in the paper, many incidents. They are getting um, you know higher profile, but we are we are doing what we can to support the community and try to tamp down on these uh, horrible uh, incidents. And you know, one of the things that. Uh, you've impressed upon all of us is, for example, anti-Semitism is not just a Jewish problem. You know, and I would extend that, you know, the anti-Asian prejudice is not just an Asian problem. You know, if because the person who hates me today is going to hate you tomorrow. And and we've seen that. What I find so astounding, I'm a child of survivors. You have, I think, a similar background. Here we are years after slavery, the Holocaust, all kinds of, you know, conflicts and yet we're talking about hate crimes. You know, you would think that we would reach a point in our history where this would be something of the past, not of the present. Uh, you know, I, I know it, it's not, you know, it's not easy to get shocked anymore, but I'm still shocked um, yeah. that this is taking place. We we shouldn't be having these painful conversations, and yet we have to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this work for several decades, and, you know, there's... I'm an optimist. I think we've made a lot of advances, um, but it, it's, you know, everyone has to be involved in doing this. It, it can't be just government doing it. It can't be just faith leaders. We really have to take a holistic approach. Everyone has to be part of it. So yeah, I think you're right that, you know, you, you would think at this point in our history we're over it, but it just takes constant work. Um, so, you know, I'm thrilled that you all are putting together this interfaith um, discussion because you're absolutely right. I think, you know, New York City prides itself as being 
um, the most diverse city on earth. But I, I do think we have a, a long way to go in terms of, of really getting to know um, the the other, the, your neighbor, in a in a in, you know not that superficial way, but understanding and, and standing up for others. So uh, we're delighted that you're you're doing this work, and um, you know look forward to advancing it. It's great. Yeah, I uh, I was I participated in testimony, offering testimony uh, before some members of the city council. For legislation, it seems like a no-brainer. Uh, I think it's Resolution One Two Eight Seven about teaching religious diversity uh, mm-hmm. in the schools. That you know, kids have to know early on that you know we are different, and and and, and even though we're different, we're the same. We're all part of that human family, uh, and I think it's 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 critical. Uh, that we get in there as soon as possible. And um, I know there are those who are saying, well, now we're going to teach religion in the schools, and that's not what this is about. This is not about, you know, violating the Establishment Clause. It's about teaching about, <laughs> you know, not, right. not asking people to to uh, select a particular faith, but but rather to select a, uh, a code of values that sees everybody uh, included in that circle and stop excluding people. So, you know, we, yeah. you know, number of steps. No, you're, that you're, have- you're, you're, you're absolutely right. My, my background actually is, uh, an attorney who did a lot of work in, in, uh, first amendment church state separation issues. And there was always that misunderstanding of like, we can't, we can't teach religion in the schools, but you can certainly, as you said, teach about religion. And, um, that's critically important, I think, in this in this day and age. And people feel, you know, I mean, I've talked to so many who, once they've been exposed to these other religions, um, whether it's in school or doing, you know, uh, exchanges between, you know, uh, churches and mosques and synagogues, um, that it actually uh, enhances their own religion. They they t- take more pride and they understand the concepts better. So. Yeah, I think that's one area where faith leaders in particular can really um, have an important role in New York City in promoting those kinds of uh, interfaith relationships, not just at the clergy level, but down right. into the grassroots. You know, yeah. I've often said we're very privileged in New York uh, that we have a closeness uh, with one another, you know, members of different faith groups. So when there is, God forbid, an attack uh, on a house of worship, when a member of the clergy is attacked, or a member of the community, uh, because of uh, that person, you know, has a different belief or orientation. We're we're there for each other. Uh, I know that we're going to stand together, and that's very reassuring. Uh, you know, go back in history, and we were we were out there alone. Uh, uh, yep. It was you know us against them, and now the us, thank God, uh, has been enlarged. And I just want to say thank you to you because I've been. A privilege to know you for some time, and we participated in many programs. Uh, and I think the city of New York is fortunate to have you in the position that you occupy because you understand the problems and how to address the problems. So we talk about cancel culture. Deborah, you gotta, we got to cancel that hatred. That, that should, be, <laughs> that should that. be the priority. Yeah. Cancel hatred. And we couldn't right. have a more effective person as, uh, leading us than Deborah Lauda. Office for the prevention of hate crime. So one day, Deborah, we hope that you're out of work, right? There'll Thank no, you. Right? No, um, you, know, <laughs> you know, no more hate I, crimes. I and, you know, you'll, no, no more hate crimes. No more I, hate, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find something else. Thanks so much. Thanks for being on The Rev and the Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. I appreciate the opportunity. We'll be Take back care. with more of the program.